My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrids, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand nuclear weapons through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Um, why are we speaking about this topic today? Well, we just recorded a short extra episode on Vladimir Putin's comments on nuclear proliferation, which are directly related to the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. I encourage uh, listeners to listen to the short episode, and we thought it would be useful to give some more extensive analysis of what we're actually talking about, why nuclear weapons matter, and what we mean by nuclear proliferation. So we're going to do this two-parter this week and next week to provide background analysis and context. Exactly. This topic will be a two-part episode. This week, we will talk about nuclear weapons in general, answering questions about who has them, why do they have them, uh, as well as the main concepts behind nuclear weapons. And then next week, we will be discussing the bubble perspective of nuclear proliferation and non-proliferation. And what are the facts? A nuclear weapon is an explosive device that derives its destructive force from nuclear reactions, either fission or a combination of fission and fusion reactions. In this context, you may have also heard about the hydrogen bombs, which cause a much bigger explosion, which means the shock waves, blast, heat and radiation all have larger reach than an atomic bomb. However, they fall in the same category, weapons of mass destruction, when it comes to arms control treaties. The world's nuclear powers have nearly 13,000 nuclear warheads in their arsenals. The vast majority of these are in the possession of the United States and Russia, who both own between 5,000 to 6,000 warheads, of which 1,500 are deployed strategic warheads, meaning ready to use. Other recognized nuclear powers are the remaining permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, France, China and the United Kingdom, with each possessing 200 to 300 nuclear warheads. Additionally, there are four countries which are unrecognized nuclear states. These are India, Pakistan, with both around 160 nuclear warheads, Israel with 80, and North Korea with 20. What is the bubble? So when we talk about you know, the bubble, and to the listeners, this is a bit more of an extended fact sheet, this episode, because the main analysis about nuclear weapons, especially proliferation, non-proliferation, will come in the next episode. But when we talk about this, I think it is... First of all, important to say, why do we care about nuclear weapons so much in particular? Um, Balder, what's so special about nuclear weapons? What is interesting about a nuclear weapon compared to, let's say, a conventional missile or rocket or even just a tank or a shotgun is that those other types of weapons are used typically on the battlefield. They are used as a way to defeat the enemy army or the enemy forces, the enemy rebels, whatever you're fighting. A, a, a tank is there to make progress um, to create territorial gain. Nuclear warheads are almost by definition, later on we will talk a little bit about the new trend of tactical nuclear weapons. That's a slightly different thing. But traditionally nuclear weapons, nuclear warheads, are there not to gain anything on the battlefield, but it is to end the war with total destruction. It is there to essentially um, threaten or execute destruction of cities, of large urban centers, in order to force your opponent to surrender, or at least to end the war. And, and, and that makes them very different from the usual way that we think about weapons. It, it's a completely different concept. I think the easiest way to quickly summarize this is through one of Einstein's quotes, who said that World War IV is going to be fought with sticks and stones, you know, because after you deploy all nuclear weapons on this planet, there's not more than sticks and stones left. Yes, and what's, what's, what's brilliant about that quote is that it also shows that the moment you would use nuclear weapons is the moment there are no longer any winners, right? I mean, the moment the United States were to deploy, uh, sorry, were 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 to use nuclear warheads against 
the Soviet Union or modern-day Russia, Russia would do the same, and in the end, there is simply no winner. The, the war might end, but no strategic objectives will have been achieved anymore. And that, that shows the very special nature of what we're talking about here. I want to talk about the differences between nuclear weapons, because I, during the fact sheet, I already read out that they are deployed strategic warheads. And there are also deployed non-strategic warheads. Those are the tactical nuclear weapons you talked about. And then there are non-deployed warheads. And I think the last one is the easiest one to quickly summarize. Non-deployed warheads are simply not combat ready. There is a process behind it that takes a longer period of time uh, for them to get ready. And then the difference to that are the ones who are deployment ready. And how are they deployed? Because there's multiple different ways of doing this. Yes, and traditionally, the, the very first... Uh, delivery systems were simply using the old systems of dropping bombs, except that in this case it would be a nuclear bomb, so you would have a bomber, an aeroplane, flying over the target, and you would actually just drop the bomb. This has slowly gone out of fashion, um, even though they still exist, those delivery systems, they're no longer as popular um, because they're easy to counter. You, you, you can shoot airplanes down before they reach their target. Um, they're also trickier to exactly control the to time properly because of all kinds of circumstances. So slowly over time, other delivery systems have become popular. First, uh, the development of uh, ballistic missiles, basically missiles in secretive silos spread out over the Soviet, throughout the Soviet Union, throughout the United States, that would literally, where they, all of a sudden the, the doors would open, the ground would open, and missiles would shoot out towards the enemy targets. Um, this was only possible later on during the Cold War, effectively, because it's actually really hard to make missiles um, target specific cities over a long distance. That's technologically really hard. That's one of the issues that we'll talk about with North Korea later, that North Korea, for example, still doesn't have that ability. Um, so you have missile systems, ballistic missile systems that can deliver warheads and more recently, uh, you've got submarines, basically nuclear submarines. Nuclear, not to be confused with nuclear engines, which is a different item, but submarines that are spread out throughout the oceans and that can deliver uh, nuclear warheads from the sea uh, much closer to the target and can be much more of a surprise. They are harder to, um, to catch with satellites. They're harder to predict because it's very difficult to actually find those submarines in the first place. Exactly, and these are the ones uh, that carry the strategic warheads, you know, the ones that are important for mutually assured destruction, which is the doctrine that is supposed to ensure that uh, nuclear superpowers don't attack each other because of the second strike capability. Because by now there's so many nuclear warheads spread out all over the United States, all over the Soviet Union, and including with the submarines that you don't know where they are. So that in case one of the two nations would attack the other one, um, there's a sure second strike capability. Russia detects that the United States has launched um, a major nuclear strike on them. So now they can strike for the second time and both countries are in shambles, destroyed, uninhabitable. And that's the idea behind mutual issue destruction that, you know, you don't want to die, meaning you're not going to use it. Exactly. And there's a lot of literature and also military doctrine developed during the Cold War about what a conventional war between, let's say, um, the two power blocks between East Germany and West Germany, what that would look like and where you should limit that war. Because let's say that all of a sudden, because of some specific crisis, uncontrolled crisis, tanks start shooting at each other between East and West Germany. There's a lot of uh, doctrine then that says, okay, keep it to skirmish level because you don't want one of the sides to actually make significant progress because if they make too much of significant progress, if the West invades the East too far or vice versa, then nuclear war has come into play, right? So it both basically has an impact on the way we think about conventional warfare out of fear for it escalating into nuclear warfare. Which is one of the one of the thoughts expressed by Graham Allison, one of the Harvard professors working on on, on nu a nuclear strategy, and he expressed exactly the same, saying that well, you know, when you think about nuclear weapons, 
there hasn't been a major war between the major world powers since we have nuclear weapons. I mean, obviously, this now goes into proxy wars, and we've, I mean, we will talk about this uh, in, in the next episode. Um, but that's definitely one of these points to consider at the end of this episode when we talk about do nuclear weapons actually make the world safer or unsafer. Um, but before we do that, uh, let's actually dive into you know a list of countries that possess nuclear weapons. And before we you know go through the entire listing, it is important to us that you know the numbers we're going to mention here are estimates. Um, we are more caring about the trends here. There's different sources that say that there's different amount of weapons um, in there. And the reason why there are different sources and why there's no concrete evidence is because this is one of the most secretive uh, matters of state in, in all of these uh, nine countries. And we will go through this listing according to who has the most nuclear warheads to who has the least nuclear warheads. And the country, allegedly with the most, is Russia with 5,977. However... Um, this sounds like a lot, and it is a lot to me at least, but this is almost nothing compared to 1986, when Russia had close to 45,000 nuclear warheads. Right. Uh, we need to be a bit careful in uh, making a direct comparison, because of course modern day warheads are more can be more powerful, our technology has progressed, and so you can't completely compare these numbers, but it does say something about how the how nuclear proliferation or non-proliferation, if you like, has evolved over time. This, this is a very significant reduction. And that wasn't purely based on the fact that the Soviet Union felt it didn't need them anymore. Uh, it was very much a part of a process between the United States and the Soviet Union that reduced these numbers of warheads. And exactly because of that, because of the efforts of modernization, I mean, 6,000 is still plenty enough to destroy a civilization as we know it. Um, there's not a lot left after you deploy all of them. And then under the umbrella of mutually assured destruction, if you add the 6,000 from the United States, then we can kiss goodbye to the world. Um, what is interesting to me is um, that the Soviet Union wasn't the first country to start uh, you know, the development of nuclear weapons. The Soviet Union only started in 1943, and it was as a response to the Manhattan Project in the United States, when the United States decided to um, develop nuclear weapons as a response to the Germans uh, developing nucle nuclear weapons. Right, and uh, it was very much the Soviet Union essentially early on copying technology that spies that were later found out and arrested um, within the Manhattan pro Project, channeled back towards Moscow. And that was very much the basis. The, the, the initial basis of the Soviet nuclear program was simply stolen technology, stolen um, science from the United States. And of course, the United States adopted a lot of the, the knowledge from Nazi Germany by incorporating Nazi scientists into their Manhattan Project itself. This this is There's an interesting story there about... Uh, Truman actually, um, by the end of the Second World War, preparing very carefully to tell Stalin that they were about uh, that they had this nuclear program. They had, of course, they were supposedly allies, but this uh, the United Kingdom, Churchill and and Roosevelt, and then Truman very much had a distrusting relationship towards Moscow. Truman carefully prepares what words to use to tell Stalin about their nuclear program. And he is amazed by the fact that Stalin doesn't seem to be upset by it at all. And that is because Stalin already knew, of course. However, Russia did not only develop, you know, its nuclear arsenal as a response to the United States, but also because Russia feels constantly threatened. I mean, we've talked about this in previous episodes, you know, from this one book that I like to quote a lot, uh, Prisoners of Geography, that Russia simply always feels threatened. And this is also being reflected in Russia's military doctrine, where it states, quote, that nuclear weapons could be used in response to the use of nuclear and other types of weapons of mass destruction against it or its allies. And also in case of aggression against Russia with the use of conventional weapons, where the very existence of the state is threatened, end quote. Which, you know, sounds very paranoid. I mean, this is also a bit of a response to conventional weapons from the United States simply becoming stronger. But it's this sounds like, you know, a country and especially the state, you know, the people in charge who feel very threatened by the outside world. 
there is something inherently paranoid in, among policymakers of the Soviet Union. If you look, I mean, I'm not just talking about Stalin, because there it was also a deep psychological infliction, but there was a, a deep paranoia, both domestically towards enemies within the Kremlin, within Moscow, as well as to the outside world, that was always an inherent part of Soviet policymaking. However, they also had some good reason to be fearful of the West, uh, to, which is not simply paranoia, right? But to genuinely feel threatened by the West. It was always obvious that Western military power was greater than Soviet military power. Even if the Red Army on paper was bigger, more tanks, more soldiers, more planes, but uh, more nuclear weapons, including that. But in reality, technologically, the West tended to be ahead of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union very much knew this. And so, whereas the, the United States never had to fear, generally, that they would lose a conventional war, also because they had the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean between them, the, the Soviet Union very much feared that. And this was clearly demonstrated in... Uh, the Vienna conference between Khrushchev and JFK, when JFK, a young and not particularly experienced president by that time, talked to Khrushchev, he said something along the lines of, well, um, the rough military parity that we have in Europe between the United States and allies and the East Bloc um, means that we have, to deal, we have to engage in dialogue. The moment JFK said that, Khrushchev was delighted because this was the United States saying, you know what, we're more or less equal in our military power, whereas the Soviet Union always felt to be the inferior military partner there. So moving on from the largest arsenal of nuclear warheads and a state that is constantly feeling threatened by this big outside power to overtake it, let's move on to the big outside power. Um, let's move on to the United States. However, before I want to talk about the details, I think it is very important to mention because this is present in our minds, but I don't think we fully understand it, that the United States is the only country who has ever used nuclear weapons in war. And I'm obviously speaking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki here. And very much like the war in Iraq in 2003, whenever you bring this up among, if you like, experts, they say, oh, do we really have to mention this again? Surely we all know this. But the fact is that we don't all know this. People in general tend to forget this they tend to forget about the very destructive steps that the West has taken. And this is a very clear example. We cannot emphasize enough and repeat enough Nagasaki and Hiroshima, just like we cannot repeat enough the war in Iraq in 2003, because it shows something about ourselves that we don't want to acknowledge. I already mentioned the event I attended with Graham Allison, you know, one of the leading nuclear experts uh, in the United States. And he made a very interesting comparison there um, when, when talking about this, because first he asked the question to the, to the room, um, would a rational actor, meaning Putin in this case, use nuclear weapons on Ukraine if you know all the goals and all the military aims of Russia are being threatened, and most importantly, if the state of Russia is being threatened? And, you know, the entire room was thinking, thinking, ah, would this be rational, would this be rational? And then his response was simply, well, was Harry S. Truman a rational actor in this in this conflict? And I think that made the entire room realize, oh, let's be careful here when we talk about Putin and whether he's rational or not. Let's think about whether Harry S. Truman was rational by dropping not one, you know, there were arguments to be made that the first one was enough, but two nuclear bombs on Japan. And it is absolutely worth pointing out that when Truman made that decision, it wasn't out of existential fear. The United States had won and, and allies had won the Second World War, both in Europe as well as in the Pacific. So it was a strategic choice to minimize U.S. casualties, to minimize... Um, um, uh, to minimize the, the prolonged agony of the Second World War, but it wasn't one where the United States was threatened in its very existence at all. Very far, very far from it. So let's move on to the details of the United States nuclear warhead arsenal, which amounts to currently around 5,428, one of the sources said. However, what is interesting to me here is that the overall production, overall time, amounts up to 70,000, which is more than all of the other countries have ever produced. And we already mentioned that this is 
due to modernization efforts that the United States has a lot more modern nuclear arsenal than Russia for comparison. Yeah, so when the Soviet Union uh, produced a new type of nuclear warhead, they would update the old ones. <clears throat> Whereas in the United States, they produce a new version, a new design, then the old ones go into the bin essentially, right? So they keep on having the most up-to-date nuclear warheads, which is something that the Soviet Union never did. And this you know, US uh, program started uh, during the Second World War when President Franklin Roosevelt felt threatened by Nazi Germany developing such a weapon, which, and this is a reoccurring theme for me in all of the different cases when we ask the question, why do they, did the countries develop nuclear weapons? I can understand the motives of all of them. You know, Russia feeling constantly threatened, the United States there feeling threatened by Nazi Germany. I can understand why they would develop a nuclear weapon. Well, absolutely, in the case of the United States, before or in the beginning of the Second World War, it makes a lot of sense because the United States understands that conventionally they don't have a lot of fear from Nazi Germany. It, 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 the, the idea of Nazi Germany winning the war in Europe is not crazy, but the idea of them then invading the United States is, seems an illusion, seems a fantasy. So how could Nazi Germany actually defeat the United States through weapons of mass destruction, through nuclear war? Uh, and so in that sense, it's a very rational kind of thought process. So from this rational thought process, uh, let's move on to the third superpower uh, in today's world. However, not in terms of nuclear warheads. Um, let's move on to China, because China only has about 350 nuclear warheads. There are U.S. intelligence reports that say it's now up to 400, which is a surprising speed. But compared to the United States arsenal, you know, the most advanced, most modernized arsenal of 5,000, this comparison is, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yes. And what is important here to remember, and it sort of goes back to that comparison of the Soviet Union of 6,000 versus 45,000, a very important element here is not so much the destructive power, because China's, China could already threaten the United States very significantly with 100 warheads, right? Drop a warhead on each of the main urban centers in the United States 100 times over, you have enough destruction to be a deterrent. But it is about the element of surprise and the element of not being able to defend yourself. So the more warheads you have and the more they're spread out over different delivery systems, the harder it becomes for your enemy to predict where it comes from. And so you're, it becomes more difficult for your enemy to counter the deployment of those warheads. Uh, numbers are mostly about that, not so much about the idea that 350 is weaker than 400. No, but every extra warhead you have maintains an element of surprise that you didn't have before. Well, except for certain presidents. I could imagine that uh, former U.S. presidents, um, speaking about one of them in particular, very much cared about the size of his nuclear arsenal. Um, but uh, let's focus again on China, uh, who started um, their nuclear program in 1954, and it was Mao Zedong who did this as a response to the first Taiwan Strait uh, crisis of 1954, which is interesting to me, because, again, I can understand the idea behind this, you have this big power, you know, the United States starts playing their muscles, you do want to be able to respond. So I, again, can understand the motives and the rationale behind Mao Zedong's, uh, you know, drive for nuclear weapons, which they then achieved in 1964. And once again, historical awareness, right? This is not that far uh, after the end of the Second World War, and Japan is next door to China. So the, the Chinese very much were aware of the destructive power of nuclear weapons and how they could be overpowered by uh, rivals, by enemies, if they didn't keep up with that program. In particular, given the additional historical context that this was right after the Korea War, and that it was actually the Soviet Union who transferred some of the technology to the People's Republic of China. Yes, despite China and the Soviet Union consistently you know, be having a complex relationship to call it like that, not automatically being natural allies, despite their formally shared ideology. Um, and afterwards, in the 60s and 70s, you see that, that 
that cooperation between Moscow and Beijing completely drying up. And so from this drying up cooperation and from the superpower of China, let's move on to the next uh, country, and that's France. And here we're talking about 290 uh, you know, strategic uh, nuclear warheads. Um, which were first tested in 1960, and you know, then the French had a functional nuclear arsenal. When it came to researching this and why the French wanted to develop a, an arsenal, I didn't find you know a specific starting date or a specific doctrine behind this, um, which frustrated me a little bit. And I said, ah, oh, you know, the French just want to be part of the game. But then you brought up that this is most likely in response to you know an Anglo-Saxon superiority. Yes, it's. This is something that is almost hard to understand in 2023, even though you still notice sometimes that the French have an antagonism towards Anglo-Saxon international relations, uh, global dominance, and that kind of thing. But keep in mind that in the 50s, in the 60s, it wasn't yet the time of the European Union. It wasn't the time of European cooperation. And France already felt humiliated uh, by having been built out by the Anglo-Saxon world, by London and by Washington, and of course the Soviet Union, but we don't talk about that. And um, they already felt that they had lost the influence from before. Keep in mind that France, throughout European history, has been an absolutely dominant power, not just in terms of Napoleon, but even before, uh, France has always played a major part in military European history. They look at the world, Charles de Gaulle looks at the world in the 50s and in the 60s and says, if we're not careful, we're going to be slaves to an Anglo-Saxon dominated United Nations, an Anglo-Saxon dominated capitalist society. Uh, we need to be able to defend ourselves. We cannot rely on London and Washington, even though from a 21st century perspective, it seems weird that France would differentiate their security perspective from that of the United Kingdom. Speaking of France, you know, differentiating uh, their security guarantees from London and Washington, let's move on to London, um, because the United Kingdom has a few has fewer nuclear warheads uh, than France, with 225. Again, these are estimates. But what is was interesting to me during the research is that France has all of its weapons as deployed strategic warheads, while the United Kingdom only has about half of its weapons. Uh, deployed and strategic. A lot of them are retired and some of them are non-deployed. What's the reason behind that? Well, there's a significant difference in the way that France and UK have organized their nuclear capabilities. So France, because of the reason we just explained, is completely independent from the United States. The UK is very much dependent on US technology, US suppliers, and the United Kingdom essentially has only one delivery system left of its nuclear arsenal, namely a nuclear submarine that is currently in the Atlantic or wherever it is, we've got no information on that, obviously, um, that is ready to strike even when the UK were to be completely overwhelmed by an enemy force. Um, that is very minimal nuclear deterrence. And that is because of this very intimate relationship with the United States. France has various systems of delivery because they cannot rely on their big brother, which is a very big strategic difference between the two. And this is very much in line with the motives I found as why the United Kingdom wanted to develop nuclear weapons. It was politicians saying, oh, we should have our own for the reasons of, well, national defense. However, also the desire that the British voice should be as powerful as any in the international debate which is very much in line with what we analyzed in our two episodes on the United Kingdom and is one of the, you know, I can understand that rationale, but it's not that immediate threat that some of the other states uh, feared there was. It is a huge difference. If you know that you can rely on a partner, then if you feel that you're doing it alone, right? That makes a very, very big difference in terms of thinking, in terms of psychology. And 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 uh, Charles de Gaulle very much pushed for this narrative, like we cannot rely on anyone else. We are France. We cannot let something like the Second World War happen again. The UK doesn't have that approach to global affairs at all. Essentially, it's an Anglo-Saxon world and we all live in it, right? <laughs> exactly, we do. And one of the countries that also lives in this Anglo-Saxon world is uh, Pakistan. 
Pakistan has about 165 nuclear warheads. It, this is very specific, and this is the number I found in many of the sources, because it's exactly five more than India. And so I think that this overall trend um, says a lot about uh, this. And it was basically goes back to Pakistan deciding in 1972 that it wanted you know, to have nuclear weapons of its own as a response to the loss of East Pakistan in uh, 1971's Bangladesh liberation, which we also talked about in the last episodes on hero, uh, hero worshipping. Yes, it, this is pure symbolism, of course, and you, you often see that. There was a bit of that during the Cold War between the major powers as well. But um, obviously, the difference, the strategic difference between having 160 or 165 is negligible. It, it, it also depends on the technology, it depends on the power. Not every nuclear weapon is the same, obviously. Uh, so uh, this is pure symbolism. But it is not symbolic that this happened after 1971. This was a time that Pakistan understood that at a conventional level, very much like the Soviet Union with respect to the United States during the Cold War, could probably not keep up the arms race. Pakistan could not win a war against India. Uh, and what do you do if you cannot win a conventional war? You need to find other means to defend your territorial integrity, to defend your Westphalian existence. And that's exactly what they did by developing nuclear weapons. And India actually developed nuclear weapons a lot earlier. I mean, so the civilian program started in 1946, and then the weapons program started in 1962, which is about 10 years earlier uh, than Pakistan. However, and unlike Pakistan, which responded to India's threat, India did not respond to Pakistan's threat, but rather to China's threat. And, you know, the historic event we can point to here is the brief Himalayan uh, border war in October of 1962, when... You know, India felt threatened because China at that time already was on a very good path to develop its own nuclear weapons. And on top of that, India understood that given its size and China's size, they were talking about future world powers, right? Even though in the 1960s that may have not been completely obvious, you didn't have to be a genius to understand that over the long term, countries with such enormous populations and such enormous um, impact on regional politics, we're going to go at it at some point in terms of rivalry. And we're going to not just have to think about each other, but also about their position in the world in general. And so this was a very different type of thinking than Pakistan's type of thinking. And I think the case where, from a, again, this is from a German perspective, it makes the most sense that a country wants to develop nuclear weapons is with Israel. But very early, you know, in 1948, right after the Holocaust, it was, you know, long-term Prime Minister uh, Ben-Gurion who was almost obsessed with, you know, obtaining nuclear weapons to prevent another Holocaust from occurring. And so there I understand very much, you know, that motivation, um, similar to, to all the other countries, of why they would want to have their, their weapons ready. And they did have them ready in 1966. And it is this is one of those items that... People who criticize Israel, and believe there are lots of reasons to criticize Israel, tend to ignore or not understand sufficiently that there isn't a country on earth that was, as cre was created as much as Israel with a very clear survival mission. We need to make sure that the Jewish people survive from all the external threats, all the anti-Semitism, everything else. And if you look at it from that, nuclear weapons absolutely make logical sense. This is not us defending the existence of nuclear weapons, simply stating that there is a rational um, argument if you say the only thing we care about is our Westphalian security, our national security, and we want to protect the Jewish people, then the best way to do that is to threaten the rest of the world with nuclear destruction. And here it is about the protection of their people, because comparing this to North Korea... It's very much about the fortressization of North Korea and most importantly, the North Korean uh, government, the, the Kim dynasty, where, you know, already in 1950s, uh, the development started. It took a very long time. Um, but then in 2006, uh, there was the first test and we've seen the last very successful test in 2017. Right. And there's an interesting parallel there again between North Korea and Israel, because if you look at Israel after the Second World War, they didn't have the military superiority that they might have now. Now they are the most advanced in terms of conventional military weapons of the region. 
and they don't have that conventional threat anymore. But right after the Second World War, they are conventionally threatened by an Arab world that absolutely wants to wipe them off the map. And North Korea is conventionally threatened by South Korea. Uh, South Korea is the dominant partner militarily, especially with the clear support from the United States and Chinese reluctance to fully support North Korea. So again, if you conventionally, in, in terms of conventional weapons, are the inferior party, then nuclear weapons become incredibly important. In the case of North Korea, as you said, to maintain a... Uh, dictatorship. And this completes the list of countries uh, that have nuclear weapons. So Russia, the United States, France, China, the United Kingdom, Pakistan, India, Israel, and North Korea. And this leads me to a very interesting thesis I heard at one of the um, events I attended a few weeks ago about the Munich Security Conference that uh, just finished, where someone said that the invasion of Ukraine sent a terrible signal to the global south you know, mostly Latin America, Africa, regions where nuclear weapons are off the table, there are even agreements, you know, prohibiting any of this. It's sending a terrible signal to them because it says that security assurances cannot be trusted. Ultimately, Ukraine gave up its nuclear arsenal from the Soviet Union in 1991, after a lot of pressure from the United States, um, and without being in operational control of them, but that this sends a terrible signal to the global south that they now want to develop nuclear weapons of their own. Yeah, well, that's that bit about Ukraine giving up its nuclear arsenal, that is true to a certain extent. But as you said, they never had operational control over it. And it wasn't an arsenal that was ready to point at Moscow and that was ready to um, ma maintain a mutually assured destruction between Kiev and Moscow. The idea that you can only be safe if you have nuclear weapons is also a bit of a twisting of reality, right? First of all, um, a country like uh, South South Africa, is it actually militarily being threatened by anyone? No. The situation of North Korea or Israel is very specific. That is not how most of the world operates. Is Nigeria being threatened by anyone militarily at the moment? No, not really. Uh, in that sense, the idea that the world would be better off if everyone had nuclear weapons is, of course, is, is a hugely simplistic analysis. But this leads me to another question. Um, what would be, because so, so far we had a lot of countries where we at least could understand the rationale behind developing nuclear weapons. So what I want to ask is, what are some reasons to develop them? And what, are, what would be reasons for countries not to develop them? Because if we look at the list of countries where, you know, there were alleged uh, nuclear weapons programs like Libya and Syria, it happens to be, you know, dictators who see nuclear weapons, just as North Korea, as the only way to stay in power and secure the regime. So I think this would be one of the reasons for why a country should develop nuclear weapons. Well, I'm not so sure about that analysis, actually, in the sense that keep in mind that in the case of North Korea, um, that is a very clear example where the North Korean regime is being pressured from all sides, especially from South Korea, Japan and, and the West, to change its very nature. But nuclear weapons themselves are have one main purpose, to basically avoid your Westphalian integrity, your Westphalian sovereignty being threatened. It has very little to do with internal control. You cannot use typically your nuclear weapons against rebel forces within your own country for obvious reasons. You would lose complete legitimacy if you, if, if you were to to use your nuclear arsenal internally. So the only thing it does, it protects your Westphalian integrity. Of course, there are outside forces that are trying to overturn an authoritarian regime. They exist. But the most important reason for nuclear weapons is just to say whoever is in power in the capital, they at least know that they're not going to be invaded by the outside. But that's exactly uh, what I was referring to. I mean, if you think about uh, Gaddafi in, in, in Libya, Yes, he was under domestic pressure, but that domestic pressure would never have materialized without um, NATO, so mostly France and the United Kingdom, actually supporting the protest with, with uh, airstrikes. I am not sure whether France and uh, the United Kingdom would have taken that step if Gaddafi was sitting on a nuclear bomb. 
I, what I think the Libya case is very enlightening in many ways because it wasn't a a war where uh, between Europe and Libya. And even if Libya in those situations had had nuclear weapons, for them to actually threaten nuclear response to those European countries would have probably been ten steps too far. Uh, as you, if you look at the way that Gaddafi was overthrown, it was a situation of local rebels being supported by outsiders, but it wasn't the outsiders who did the actual overthrowing of the regime. Um, and and that's, that would be similar to many other cases. And North Korea is a little bit different because the outside doesn't have any access to rebel forces or anti-government forces within North Korea. In most situations, if the United States or in the past the Soviet Union or whoever else wants to overthrow a regime, you do that by supporting local rebels and you do not threaten or become threatened by nuclear war. So what are some of the other reasons than why states would develop nuclear weapons? So we pointed out fear of being overthrown from the outside. Uh, you know, the fear of nuclear strikes against oneself, meaning that would be the United States uh, ambition. Simply being part of the big boys, that's the United Kingdom. And what are some of the other reasons? Uh, well, the, 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 main, the main reason is to dim diminish the chance of engaging in um, territorial conventional conflict, right? And this was very clearly the case, it has been very clearly the case between India and Pakistan. India and Pakistan were engaged in three full-blown wars before the full development of their nuclear weapons, especially Pakistani nuclear weapons. Since then, the, there was one relatively limited war and quite a few skirmishes on the border with the latest one in 2019, but very far away from the wars that they engaged in before nuclear weapons. So what it does is it limits the possibility of conventional warfare harming your interest or your territorial integrity too much. Uh, and in that sense, the, uh, the case of, of India and Pakistan would kind of vaguely, and we have to be very careful there, suggest that you could make the argument that nuclear weapons make the world a safer place. Of course, the problem with these, with these kinds of analysis is that when it goes wrong, it really, really, really goes wrong. And we haven't been there yet. But that is, of course, the, the, the scary nightmare scenario that at some point a conventional war does get taken too far between India and Pakistan. Someone panics, presses on the nuclear button, and, and then the consequences are worse than anything we can imagine. And an extension of this would be the border region in the Himalayas would be uh, what China and India do to their uh, border guards, where they do everything in their power not to give them real weapons. Um, that makes it easier to kill each other, meaning to uh, leading to a higher escalation of, let's say, war or even nuclear war. And that the main tools they have are sticks. And I mean, people still die because for some reason they'd really like to fight each other on the border. There's you know, regular reports of deaths. But they occur through sticks, or one of the one of the events that happened two years ago. Yes, uh, there have been a few deaths, but those deaths were limited in their in 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 their scope and in their reach. And this is exactly what you get if two countries are terrified of uh, of a full blown conflict. Um, they, there's no doubt that India and China. One of the reasons why they've increasingly started talking to each other is that they understand that there is actually too much at stake here. And they cannot continue this. They cannot continue this, exactly. So this is a list of reasons to develop nuclear weapons. However, let's talk about the reasons against uh, developing nuclear weapons for a state. There, there are essentially three, right? First of all, uh, it creates an environment, literally, of mass destruction in which you find it very hard to actually engage with each other. Because if I were to talk to you and you knew that I was carrying a gun in my pocket, then your relationship with me becomes very different than if you know that I'm unarmed and I cannot actually directly harm you. The, the fact that there's always this nuclear weapons in the background makes diplomacy more difficult, less trust gets created, etc. Um, the second very obvious reason is um, that nuclear weapons can go wrong even unintentionally. Um, uh, nuclear disaster can happen. Uh, can happen. Nuclear weapons might um, 
be badly handled, might decay if a state cannot maintain its arsenal but uh, does not have the economic means to uh, fully guarantee all security measures, etc., etc. So nuclear disaster can strike even if unintended by the state. And it can also strike in a situation of civil war where all of a sudden one crazy general gets hold of a nuclear arsenal and starts pushing some buttons without any concept of the longer term consequences. Um, so basically unintended disaster. And the last one, and that is by far the most powerful one, is intended disaster. The idea that we can destroy our world, the, the idea that we can kill millions or billions of people by just pressing a few buttons should scare us all to death, right? It, it should scare us all to no end. There is a, a feasible scenario where some world leaders go crazy and they start pressing buttons and we all die. That is a world that we should be very worried about. And that's exactly why non-proliferation is such an important exercise. And I think there's a half reason that I would like to add to this, and that's the financial one. It's very expensive and you don't, you already mentioned the, the non-proliferation treaties, you don't want to experience the sanctions that a country like North Korea is experiencing because the powers that do have nuclear weapons are very, very concerned about nuclear weapons spreading all over the world. Oh yeah, so that, that would be a clear reason why a country now wouldn't want to engage in it. Because if South Africa were to develop also nuclear weapons, there would be very significant diplomatic and economic retaliation against that. Also, as a taxpayer, you can ask yourself, do I want my South African government to spend money on that when I've got many other priorities? Uh, but that, can, that is an argument that can be applied to the military in general, of course. I think there's a, a few maybe of our American listeners will agree um, with why is their money being spent on, on the huge military budget and not on some other other issues. So let's then end this with a very provocative question and a bit of a philosophical one. Do nuclear weapons, do nuclear warheads make the world safer or less safe? That is a question that I think has no answer because she, if nuclear weapons, so here's the scenario, if nuclear weapons had not been developed, there is a strong case to be made that more wars would have broken out and more people would have died than they have over the past 70 years. However, the fact that we are looking at a scenario where potentially millions or billions of people can die if things go horribly wrong means that it is, it seems, it seems a stretch to argue that the world is safer because of that. So if the question is, have fewer wars broken out over the past 70 years because of, because of the existence of nuclear weapons? The answer to that would be yes. Are we safer? Well, that's not a question I would like to say yes to in general, because the fact that we've got these warheads pointing at all of us should make us deeply worried. It is an incredible amount of trust in a political science concept in the concept of mutually assured destruction. So if you are a big believer of that concept, then I'm sure you feel safer. If you, you know, believe that they are irrational people, and I remember all, a lot of these feelings came up with uh, Trump uh, becoming president in 2017, and I assume people feel about this, uh, people feel the same about this with Putin. Do we think that these people are rational enough? Do we trust these people? And I mean, even to extend this to Harris Truman, whom I believe people uh, thought to be to be rational, he he also dropped a nuclear bomb. Yes, and it's not just those specific people you pointed out, but the systems around them. Do you trust that the systems around them are robust enough, rational enough to limit the potential insanity of one individual? Right, Stalin going crazy. Is there still a system around Stalin that allows um, the world to sleep at night? Um, and exactly right. I, unless you believe that all these processes are perfectly controlled and perfectly streamlined, everyone should continuously worry. And the scenario that you know something like this could go terribly wrong, that some of the circumstances around nuclear weapons could go terribly wrong, was very much proven by you know, one of the people that I don't think receives enough credit in history, Stanislav Petrov, who was a Soviet Union soldier, part of the air defense forces. 
And he was on duty when on September 26, 1983, uh, you know, three weeks after the Soviet military had shot down a Korean airline flight 007. Um, he was on duty and suddenly, you know, the system showed that the United States had fired a nuclear weapon, followed by five more. However, he judged this to be a false alarm and his decision to disobey orders against Soviet military protocol is what ultimately, you know, prevented a second strike attack on the United States, you know, and therefore saved the world from probable, probable nuclear fallout. And I think that this shows that there are mistakes within this because ultimately they figured out that it was a problem within Soviet satellites. Yes, and it's important to emphasize that despite us engaging in the rational analysis of why nuclear weapons might actually be popular among governments, uh, there it has created a looming threat overall of humanity. And, and we have to be very careful in being denying that existential threat in favor of pointing out relatively small tactical gains. This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on nuclear weapons, the first part of our two-parter on the nuclear conversation. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side, Balder. Which closing quote did you pick for us today? I think it would be appropriate to once again quote Einstein uh, with the same one that we have already mentioned before, just to emphasize this idea that we know that nuclear weapons exist, but we have to do everything in our power to limit the possibility of them ever being used again as they were used on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. The quote goes, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Mm -hmm.